My son Mark heard from a dear friend of his up in British Columbia, I think two days ago, a friend of his, very dear friend, a young lady, they were in an upstairs apartment, and I guess some very steep stairs there. Anyway, she fell down some stairs, and when they got to her, she was dead. And she had simply broken her neck or her back, I guess, and is suddenly dead. Well, of course, you might imagine a shock that people experience when something so utterly unforeseen and unexpected like that happens. And immediately people begin asking, why? That's always the question that those who sometimes feel a little bit of shared guilt because you go back and you say, if only I had called a little earlier, or if only we had decided to go to the store like we'd said we were going to and then we canceled it, or if only the phone hadn't rung when it did. And you think of all of the things that might have contrived to put this person in a different area at a different time. I'm leading up to something that has to do with life and the purpose of life and why tragedy, why accident, and why things like this occur to us. Many years ago, I was going into San Diego, California at the controls of Fanjet Falcon Triple One Alpha Mike. There was a thick overcast, and we were on the ILS, which is the Instrument Landing Service, flying, of course, in thick clouds, only looking at the instruments. And we were right on the course to land at MacArthur Field there, and as I broke free of the clouds right in front of me, looking for all the world like a mosquito plastered inside my windshield, was a little Cessna 150. That little single-engine aircraft was right barely under what to him would have been the overcast, the undercast to me, I'm breaking out of it. There he is right in front of me. I have to rinse the airplane like this. He goes whizzing by. I get back on course. My heart is going like this because I barely missed this guy. Well, it reminded me of what had happened a few years earlier when a 727 was on that very same ILS when a little aircraft was there below the clouds, but this time he didn't see the little airplane in time, and the little airplane hit the wing of the big airplane, which of course just killed the people in the little airplane. I think there were two of them, but it also wiped out the hydraulic system on the 727. So he had no controls anymore, he had no flaps, all he had was power. So he called MacArthur Tower, it was one of the major airlines in the United States, and he said, we're going in. And MacArthur Tower came back and said, Roger, the crash trucks are on the way. The guy said, Roger. The training, you know, of just this laconic, almost routine speech that they affect on the radio communication between pilot and tower. And so here were, I think, over a hundred people, as I recall, and they crashed right in a huge line of homes and apartments right on the top of one of those hills in San Diego. I remember going in there later on and looking down and seeing the big swath of wreckage where that airplane went in. And I've often thought of that. Of course, I've flown many different types of aircraft, including 11 types of jets, for many thousands and thousands of hours. And I've had a few close calls in my time, and thankfully that time is over. Uh, sometimes I think not so thankfully because I miss flying, but uh, I'm probably through flying for the rest of my life now. But nevertheless, it does make you think when you've had a few close calls yourself of what that would be like, that last few seconds of your life, 
when you are seeing the ground rushing at you. You're sitting there in your familiar environment in the cockpit of an airplane, and you know, I'm going to be, in moments from now, just little bitty pieces, just bloody, smoking meat, and nothing left of me. Many years ago, my wife and I decided to take a belated honeymoon. We had gotten married over here in Gladewater in Mama Hammer's living room, and I took my young bride out to California and showed her the home that I had begun to purchase. We had a second mortgage on it. I'd planted a little yard, and she was all excited because we got there late at night, and the headlights showed the little sprigs of grass beginning to come up. So we then, in a very few weeks, were able to go up to Oregon, where I had grown up, and I introduced her to some of my high school friends that I hadn't seen in a long time. There were a couple of young men named Ronald and Donald Koch, C-O-A-K-E-S, and they were identical twins, so very hard for people to tell them apart. I could, because I knew them very well. But I'd known them since about the fifth grade, and we had sung in the Eugene a cappella choir. We had sung as a quartet with another young man that I saw just here last uh, few months named Alan Merriweather, who was, uh, was up there for our 50th high school anniversary or reunion. So Ron and Don and Alan and I were all real small for our age, and they could put a board across us, and we all looked somewhat alike. We're all black-headed and small little guys, and we wore white shirts, and we went around to some of the civic clubs and to MacArthur Court and the university and here and there, I think on one or two occasions, actually were on radio there in Eugene with a little quartet that we had put together. So I took Cheryl by and showed them where the Koch twins had lived. They were there as young men after they got out of the Navy. I joined the Navy because they came by to visit me at Ambassador College in Pasadena, and I saw them in those uniforms, and I said, I can't wait to get in. So they were the reason why I joined the Navy. But a family had moved in next door from, I believe, back in Omaha, Nebraska. And there was a young lady and her very best girlfriend. And they were so inseparable that the girlfriend had come to live with the daughter of the family who had bought the home next to the Cokes family. And they were out washing her car one day, and they saw these two girls, and an acquaintance struck up, and then a friendship, and finally they began dating. And by the time we got up there in uh, late 1953, I believe it was, Ronald had just been married, and Donald had proposed and had been accepted, and the wedding date was set. We just couldn't stay that long, but it was for only a few days after we were due to come back to Temple City in California. And we went out to dinner with them and so on, and enjoyed the visit with them and some of my other high school friends from up there, and Cheryl got to meet them. I remember. Here I had been in Texas so very little and had been married to Cheryl for such a short period of time, and yet those Oregonians said, How long did you say you had been in Texas? Already, apparently, my accent had broadened out a little bit, and I don't know why, but... I think the morning after we arrived back home, the telephone rang, and it was a girl friend of mine. I had never really dated her, but she had been the uh, very dear friend and a wife twice of <laughs> the same man who was the star baseball pitcher for the Springfield High School baseball team named Susie Brookhart, and she called and told me she had some very bad news. And she began telling me the Koch twins had been in an accident. And I said, oh no, which one? And then she told me both of them. And then she told me all four of them. They had gone out to dinner, and they were driving home. It was a four-lane divided highway, but a man was completely drunk, 
and he went across the divider, which had a planter box in the middle of it. His car turned nearly upside down and hit them right in the windshield, and four young people were crushed to death in that accident. And when she told me all four, of course, it just hit me very, very deeply. It was uh, incredible and almost impossible to, to handle and to fathom that that had occurred. The very next morning, in our post office box at our home in Temple City, came the announcement if we could attend Donald Koch's wedding. His wedding announcement arrived after the news that he had died. If you will turn to Luke 13 with me, if you ever wonder why, I've had cause to wonder why, when I lost my brother Dick, because my brother Dick was on a baptizing tour sitting in a right seat looking through the letters of the people they were to visit the next day, when another man, I won't mention his name, I have in a past, that's beside the point at this time, had not paid attention. They were up on a road near San Luis Obispo, and they had been on a four-lane divided highway, but there was some construction, and now it was only two-lane. But he stayed in the wrong lane and met a big semi head-on and tried to go off the road, and the semi tried to go off the road at the same time and smashed into the car on my brother's side. He lived one week and died. I've had a lot of occasions to ask why. When my mom died, and my sister Beverly died, and so have you, because there's not a person in this room who has not lost a loved one, even our youngsters who have lost grandparents. And all of us have lost brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, children, which has got to be the most difficult of all, certainly difficult for my father when he lost my brother Richard David. Chapter 13, verse 1 of the book of Luke, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, caught them sacrificing where they weren't supposed to, apparently. And these men just came in, soldiers, with their swords, and began hacking them to bits and killing them. And it was quite well known. It was like mass murder. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose you that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? He said, I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Did he mean you shall all perish at the edge of the sword? You will all have a group of men wielding swords come in and hack you to bits. No, not at all. Or those eighteen, he gives a different example, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Do you think they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Those people in that 727 were just average people. There were some Mexicans among them, but primarily they were all Americans. Those people in that great big DC-10 that lost an engine went in upside down to Chicago O'Hare about 12, 15 years ago were just average Americans. The people in the value jet that went into the swamp down in Florida were just average Americans. But the cabin filled with black acrid smoke, and they were dying on the way down while our oxygen fire was burning up the passenger, the uh, baggage compartment, rather. So do we suppose, some people do, some people make that mistake, do we suppose that God, from his heavenly armchair, looked down and said, this is a dirty, rotten bunch of people? All of them? Would God do that to get rid of just one of them and send all these other people screaming to their death because he was mad at somebody? 
Is that the God that some people worship? Well, let me tell you about a young man years ago, again, I will not mention a name, who learned of John Hill's wife's death, whom we knew very well. And John and Audrey and Shirley and I were very dear, close friends and inseparable, went to dinner all the time. And uh, we're very close friends with them in our early years of marriage out in the early college days in Pasadena. Audrey died following a broken leg. She had a lot of liver damage, I think, and eventually she died. There was a man who stood in the pulpit of one of the worldwide churches and told the congregations that Audrey had been taken in order to punish John. Now, to me, you would think if God wants to punish John, why not punish John but leave Audrey alone? Because you see, they'd already been separated anyway. So this reasoning is out there, isn't it? I mean, people do think that, and Jesus showed that people thought that, because that's why the issue came up. It came up to him. Do you suppose they were sinners above all other Galileans because this thing happened to them? So Christ knew that there's a tendency in human nature to look at tragedy and happenstance and accident and to try to find meaning in it, try to find some series of events that were actually intended. People in the military have been very comforted by saying, if the bullet has your name on it, it's going to get you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's just a form of fatalism. It doesn't mean a thing. It's not true, but it's been very comforting to some people. They think, well, maybe if there was a bullet made over here in Yugoslavia somewhere, or maybe over here in, in uh, Bucharest or Berlin or someplace else, and it's got my name on it, then eventually it's going to get me, and there's nothing I can do about it, so why worry? Well, then why even wear a helmet or keep your head down? But some people just deal with this kind of fatalism. No, that is absolutely not true. Most people have this basic misconception, and it goes like this. This is God's world. This is God's beautiful country. This is God's day. These are God's institutions. This is God's government. These are God's churches. We are God's people. God looks after us. We all have a guardian angel. And therefore, if anything wrong, anything painful, anything that is deleterious to good health, anything that is evil happens to us, it's got to be because God is out to get us. We're being punished. Something has been going on in our lives, and it shouldn't have, and God is going to get us. Now hold that thought for a minute and then try to wade through some of the worst examples you can imagine of the rotten, filthy despots in the world like Adolf Hitler or Apple of the Hun or Benito Mussolini or Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot, whom we have learned recently murdered more than one million people. Yet there are these people who live long lives, and some of them, like Pol Pot, lived as a multi-multi-millionaire and lived in luxury with all of the things that the human physical senses could ever desire and died of old age. So some of them prosper. Didn't Jeremiah in the Lamentations cry out to God, Why do the wicked prosper? It's been so hard for people to deal with that. Why do some of the rottenest people on the face of the earth have more money than good people? The Koch twins were good young men. They were not devout churchgoers, but they didn't curse and swear. 
and they didn't smoke, and they didn't run around. They were just good, solid, young American men, middle America. And as the average person goes, they were probably better than most. You could say probably the same thing about those people sitting in the value jet seats or the DC-10 or the 727. And what about the people who were the Galileans that were sacrificing or the 18 who were simply sitting there and chatting one afternoon when some ancient brick or mortar let go and a portion of a wall came cascading down on them and they all died. Now, no matter what we think, we better get it out of our heads if we think that God looked down and said, it's time for me to get them, because Christ said, I tell you, no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Well, now, wait a minute. Aren't there many people who repented and perished? Oh, I should say, Herod beheaded James, the brother of John, with a sword, Acts 12. Stephen was stoned to death, Acts 7. Most of the apostles were martyred and murdered. There were, during the, after, the days of the aftermath at the time of Luger, Luger uh, I'll say in a minute, Luther and Zwingli, trying to say both names at the same time, in the Protestant Reformation, more than 900,000 people were put to death by the Roman Catholic Church at that time in the Inquisition trying to ferret out people who would dare to cling to the 14th of Nisan for the Passover instead of going along with the edict of the church to observe Ishtar or Easter as they had set it up on the calendar. Good people all, many of them no doubt repentant and converted and baptized. So since the righteous oftentimes die horrible deaths, it is said that Polycarp, the student of John, John who was the apostle whom Jesus loved and vice versa, who wrote the book about love and who was the bishop of a very large church in Ephesus and who wrote the book of Revelation in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as well as the Gospel of John. And his disciple, even though John was predicted of Christ that he was going to live and die of old age, his disciple Polycarp was burnt alive. Can't imagine a more horrible death than that. A death going down in an airplane, even if you have a few seconds to think about it, you don't really feel it when it comes. It just boom and, and, and nothing there. You don't feel anything. What you feel is all mental and emotional prior to the moment. But when the moment arrives, there's no feeling. You're dead. You're alive one moment and dead the next. But if they burn you to death? So now, what does Jesus mean? I tell you, no. It is not that they were sinners above everybody else. They weren't worse people than anybody else. But except you repent you shall all likewise perish. Well, then there's something about the manner of the death that caused him to say likewise. Because, you see, their deaths were meaningless. Their deaths were purposeless. Their deaths were as accidental as the hundreds of dogs, cats, and deer who will die on American highways today and tonight. They meant nothing. Now, we've got to get that through our heads. There was no great significance in those deaths. Those deaths were as meaningless as a group of Stone Age people that die of disease in Papua New Guinea. It meant nothing. If your death means nothing, then what was your life worth? What lesson had you written for other people in your life? Of what value was your life? If your death meant absolutely nothing, then to me it means that your life wasn't worth much either. That these people weren't really significant. They weren't really accomplishing much. 
they weren't specially called of God, were they? Or would God have allowed this to happen to them? If you're specially called of God, I'll tell you what will happen to you. Either A, you will be martyred and your death will have great purpose and great meaning, or B, if you do die, you will, you will be assumed into God's kingdom. But you have been chosen of Him, and you will be in His kingdom. It will not be meaningless or purposeless, because your life is not meaningless or without a purpose. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15th chapter. When my sister Beverly knew she was going to die, and that's a very traumatic thing when somebody knows that they have cancer, and they battle it, they go through the operation, and they go through the chemotherapy, and they lose all of their hair, and they lie there, and they vomit, and my brother-in-law, bless his heart, Vern Matson, was so tender and wonderful to Beverly, called her Bevy, and would go in there, and Dottie and, and uh, Vern would take care of my sister Beverly, and my wife and I visited her several times during her illness. We were rushing out there to see her one last time, and in order to get the ticket to uh, get some kind of a price that we thought we could afford, we had to go through Houston, and I called out there to Dottie from the Houston airport, and she said that Bev had died only about an hour or so earlier. So we were a little late to get there that time. But when I was sitting in her kitchen, the last conversation we had, she said, with her head wrapped in a bandana, and I knew she didn't have any hair on her head at all, she said, Ted, what's going to happen to me? Now this was Herbert W. Armstrong's firstborn daughter. This was Herbert W. Armstrong's little Bobby Beezer, as he called her, a little bouncing baby, many years before I was born. She was 12 years my senior. In all those years, hearing my father, she didn't read a lot of what he wrote, and she turned a deaf ear to much of what he said. She still had to ask me, Ted, what's going to happen to me? Because in later years, Beverly had filled her mind with a lot of philosophy. She had one entire wall, half as big as that wall there, absolutely choked with books. And she had read Eastern and Oriental philosophy and Greek philosophy and American and British philosophy. And she'd read all kinds of books about life and the meaning of life and the purpose of life and what happens when you die and all the concepts that other people have about it, psychology and philosophy. She loved those subjects. And she asked me, Ted, what's going to happen to me? So I turned to 1 Corinthians 15. And I simply began reading exactly what it says. In verse 12, If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And I said, Beverly, forget my dad. Forget dad and his religion. Forget Herbert W. Armstrong. This is the Bible. This is not Ted. It's not dad. It is 1 Corinthians 15, the Word of God. The same Bible, a copy of which was aboard the Pinta and the, Maria, the Santa Maria and so on, when Columbus thought he had discovered America. It's been around for all these 2,000 years and more. It's what the Bible says. And I tried to reach her mind about the resurrection of the dead. But you know, Catholics don't believe it. Lutherans don't believe it. Methodists don't believe it. Baptists don't believe it. Pentecostals don't believe it. Nobody believes it if they believe in the immortality of the soul. So what do they do? Take a great big pair of pinking shears to be careful of their Bible and just cut this right out of the Bible, the Word of God? When Christ said in the fifth chapter of John, there is coming a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. When Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He talked about his resurrection and that he was going to resurrect other people. He resurrected Lazarus as a type of his own resurrection. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? So do these churches believe Christ is still dead? Some of them apparently do. I was shocked to find out years ago that 44% of the young men who were aspiring preachers who were going to occupy pulpits in the United States did not believe in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. They just preach and teach all of this. You know, you can't, I don't think, be a gay pastor in a gay church in the Episcopalian church and believe in the Bible, can you? Could you ever preach from Romans, the first chapter? Could you ever preach about Sodom and Gomorrah and stand up there and warn people about that? Now, I have been on a couple of occasions in recent years to a Protestant church. On each occasion, it was to a funeral. And I was utterly amazed in one occasion at how pagan that ceremony was. I felt like I had entered into an absolutely pagan environment with all the rigmarole that they went through and a female so-called pastor who is up there reading through 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the love chapter. They didn't say one word. This dead lady that was a neighbor of mine was lying there in the beer. Her husband was over there crying. And there were sisters and brothers and all the rest of them. The pastor never even acknowledged that there was a body down there. There were two of them that shared it, and they just talked about how she was at home with the Lord, up there in the arms of Jesus. They wouldn't have dared read this. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom, if he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. The Protestant ministers of this world take great umbrage. They really get angry with the word asleep. They say, that's soul sleeping. They don't like that doctrine called soul sleeping. Well, the Bible talks about the dead as if they are asleep. Now, at the time that I was talking to my sister Beverly, she was contemplating cremation. She asked me what I thought about it. I was very gentle about it, but I didn't go into as much detail as I will with you at this moment. But I did tell her that I hoped that she would not do that, that we would feel differently about it. We would rather feel that uh, she would do exactly the same as Dad and Mom and Dick. You know why I am against, quote-unquote, not that I would say doctrinally if somebody does this, that they've done something so horrendous that uh, they have destroyed the possibility of somebody being reconstituted. Otherwise, I couldn't ask the question about somebody who ate shark's liver, but the shark had eaten a human being, and the human being became a part of the shark, and the shark was eaten by a human being who then had ingested a part of the, you know, uh, cells that used to be a part of another human being. Anyway, people deal with that. Nuclear explosions, fires, cremation, people absolutely turned into gas and heat and flame and energy and ash. And how is God going to do that? As a matter of fact, the question comes up right here in this chapter a little later on, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come, Paul said. And he called it a foolish question. What is the method God is going to use? Ultimate punishment. Luke, the 16th chapter, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. 
And the rich man who has lived sumptuously and who has millions of dollars does not pay a bit of attention to Lazarus who is lying at his gate filled with weeping sores with only the dogs to come and lick him, and the man wouldn't give him so much as one meal or anything. And so he sees a wall of flame approaching. And what did John say when he said to the Pharisees, Bring forth therefore fruit meet or fitting for repentance, and say not to yourselves that we have Abraham to our father, because even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and God is going to hew down the branches and the wheat that he is going to throw into the barn, he's going to gather into the barn, but the chaff he's going to throw into the fire. He is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the baptism with fire is not a baptism that you and I want, because it said the fire would burn them up, both root and branch. And of course, in the last chapter of the Bible, it talks about the feet of the righteous will tread down the ashes that used to be the wicked. So the method that God is going to use, 2 Peter, the second chapter, when the elements will melt being on fire with fervent heat, the method that God is going to use when He halts all human reproduction, when the human family has come to that point where the entire plan of God is now complete and there should be no more children born. Remember Isaiah 65, there shall be no more in that new heaven and new earth an infant of days. There will be no more babies born. A sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. So there is a one hundred year period where people will have a far greater lifespan, a far greater opportunity to receive God's truth and to receive His salvation and to repent and be baptized and become a child of God than you and I will have had in our lifetime, in that one hundred year period after the millennium. Then it says, the graves will give up the dead in the twentieth chapter of the book of Revelation. And it says, death and hell, but the word is Hades, meaning a grave, the dark underworld of the dead. It has nothing to do with infernal regions or fiery regions, but it has everything to do with the dark, dank, clammy earth in which people are interred. When is a grave not a grave? It's only a grave if there's a body in it. It is not a grave if it's merely a hole in the ground. They might call it that, but it's not a grave until it's received a body. So the graves are going to give up the bodies, and death and the grave shall be thrown into Gehenna fire. And that's what the rich man saw approaching, a wall of flame. Privately, my own opinion is, since it says that the elements shall melt being on fire with fervent heat, and we know that the earth and its tectonic plates are actually floating on magma, and we know that drilling straight down X number of miles gets us into that magmatic part of the core of the earth, which is nothing but molten rock, which, of course, extrusions and so on are coming up all over the place. Go to Yellowstone for an example. But there are hot springs and active volcanoes all over from the uh, bed of the ocean to uh, everywhere around the ring of fire, the great mountains of the earth, and we all know that and we're familiar with that. So to me, it is now not submerging the tectonic plates beneath the waters of the sea as had been done prior to recreation week in Genesis 1 and as had been done during the day of the Noatian deluge. But now it will be submerging the tectonic plates and all of human beings that are still flesh and not spirit into the magma which will come roaring up onto the earth and will be so super hot that it's molten rock and will burn everything so that the entire surface of the earth, according to Second Peter, the second and third chapter, will be completely changed and there will be, it says, no more sea 
There will be no more green grass. There will be no more atmosphere, bathosphere, lithosphere, the three spheres of the earth. There will be instead gold, silver, beauty, etc., and the earth will become the headquarters of God's new kingdom. The method, then, that God is going to use to destroy all of wicked, sinning mankind is what? Fire. Since that is the method that God is going to use to completely destroy the wicked, my own personal feeling and opinion is that that should not be a method that loved ones would use or that people should choose to destroy their body after they are dead. We have the example throughout the Bible of even Moses and Satan disputing over the body of Moses, as we're told in the book of Jude, and that the body of Moses was concealed where even Satan the devil has never been able to unearth it and protect it apparently by God's angels because men would have made a huge pagan uh, thing out of it, probably built some great big building around it and so on. It would have been a, a pagan thing. So God concealed that. But we know when Abraham bought the cave and he laid Sarah there, we know when Abraham himself was buried and that his two sons were there, including Ishmael, that participated in the burial. And we know that it said the kings of Israel and Judah were laid at rest with their fathers. And we know that all of these patriarchs and the righteous men of old were entombed and they were buried appropriately and properly in the earth in a tomb or in a grave. And that is the method that God uses in the Bible. So I told Beverly that, Bev, if and when death comes to you, in the next split second of your consciousness, you are going to be alive. You will never even be aware that you were dead. There won't be any conscious thought. And I went through her operation and my operation. I'd had a little operation for repair surgery on one elbow, the only time in my life that I'd ever been put under anesthesia. And I told a story before, are you ready? And I was going to count 199, 98, 97. I'd practice to make sure I wouldn't goof up, you know, counting, counting backwards, 100, 99, 97, 98, 90, and so on. And I was ready. I was, I'm, yes, I'm ready. And she said, are you ready? And I looked, and she was asking if I was ready to go back to my room. And the operation had taken about three or four hours, and I was utterly unaware. She just turned a little valve. They already had the IV in there and put this stuff in my veins, and I was gone. Well, I'll never recall that several hours. That was the blackest. Of course, it was the most restful, deepest sleep I ever had, too. No dreams there at all. Just completely, profoundly black. Some of you here in the room have had dreams like that where you have been completely out. I should say you've been put out and you haven't dreamed. You've been put out with anesthesia because you had an operation. So I said, it's just like that, Beverly. It's just like quicker than you can blink your eye or clap your hands together. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The hope is not alive, but my father has hope in Christ. My mother, my brother, my sister Beverly, your loved ones who are dead and gone have hope. It's not a living hope. It's not a conscious hope, but they have hope in Christ that they are going to hear his voice. They're going to hear the trump of the archangel. They're going to look around and they're going to probably all of them say as if with one voice in their millions, what happened? And then they will suddenly know, obviously, when they look around and realize they've got a new and a different body, and they see all the other people beginning to soar with them, and they realize we're being gathered together, and we're on our way to meet together and to head over to Jerusalem 
very quickly the human mind within just seconds will be able to understand what's happening here, what's going on. They will remember perhaps the last moment the doctor saying something to them or a loved one leaning over them and holding their hand and crying. They will remember how they were just so dull they could hardly come out of the fog of some kind of a painkiller, thankfully, that people are given sometimes when they're very near death. And we should be thankful for those things so that they don't suffer pain. But whatever their last thoughts were, those will also be like the beginning of the first thought that they will think when they come up. And to me there is tremendous comfort in this, and I can't understand why it is that the churches in this world utterly reject this chapter in the Bible and the entire truth of God about the resurrection. Notice again, they were fallen asleep in Christ. If in this life we only, only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Let me cover something again real quickly. I was just talking to Mr. Vance about. He has a letter from a family, and I've had this question asked to me many times, so I'll cover it very quickly, because Christ is the first fruits in two ways. Christ is the first begotten among all mankind by the Father as a human being. Now try to get the distinction. Christ came as a member of divine Elohim, emptied himself, as it says in Philippians, the third chapter, became of no report, took on himself the seed of Abraham, and became a little, they say clinically, it's a zygote, but it's a, a little fetus. But the little beginning human creature that is there at the instant of conception. Maybe you've been watching some of CNN lately and the big flap there is over people donating eggs and some of these women cry over their lost egg. You know, oh, mercy, please spare me. But anyway, uh, they've not only got sperm banks, they got egg banks now. And some of the women that donate the egg, then they see this little baby that resulted because they transplanted the egg in some other woman's womb. And she became pregnant. Now this other woman has a baby. And now the one that donated the egg says, I want my egg back. I mean, it just drives me crazy. But it's been on TV lately. And it's enough to ruin your breakfast, you know, watching things like that. It really is. But Jesus Christ, when he was born of Mary, was a human being, as you and I are human being, but the divine energy that made him a little zygote or a fetus in the womb came from God the Father changing Jesus Christ. How they did it, don't ask me. It is a divine miracle. It boggles your mind, but then don't ask me how he could breathe into red mud and say, hello, you're Adam, and don't ask me how he could make a hummingbird or how he could cause that moon to stay in the velvety gravitational field of this earth exactly the right distance, never wandering too far away, never getting too close, or the earth never getting too close to the sun, even though here in Texas we think it is right now, <laughs> or never getting too far away so that it doesn't get too cold. But if God can do all of that, then I don't have any qualms about God performing a tremendous miracle of becoming man and living among his own creation. The Word was made flesh. Now, once having been made flesh, it says, from the womb he was begotten of the Father. And somehow there's a difference here. You see, before, and this is pretty deep, I understand this, pretty deep, pretty profound. But before this time, they were one divine Elohim, Father and Son. And Jesus said, my Father is greater than I. Elohim said, the Logos doing the speaking, 
let us make man in our image. John, the first chapter, helps us understand that, as does Hebrew, the first chapter. Without him was not anything made that was made. By him were made, or, or all things were made. He is the one who became the creator. Now, once he became human flesh, he was begotten by the Father. And the Father placed his, the Father's, spirit in Christ, and Christ became the first begotten of all human flesh. That in all things, the Bible says, he might have the preeminence. He is the firstborn of the dead, but he was also the first begotten, which helps me understand, did the patriarchs, did Abraham, David, or any others you want to mention, Enoch, Elijah, any of them, have the Holy Spirit in the same way you and I can have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. They were not begotten of the Father. But the member of the divine Elohim who dealt with them, as it said, the Spirit in Christ which uh, was with them testified. And when David prayed, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, he was praying to the one he knew of as God, the one who appeared to Moses as Yah or I am, etc. But the Jehovah or Yahweh, who is God in covenant relationship with Israel, is the one we know of as Jesus Christ. The Father, no one had ever heard His voice or seen Him at any time. Christ is the one saying that. He wouldn't have said that of Himself because He had allowed Moses to look on His own hind parts, hadn't He? Because He said specifically, no man has seen His face nor His shape at any time. He wouldn't have said that of Himself. He was speaking from the earth in His earthly form of the Father. No man has seen God the Father at any time. So Christ was the first begotten, and at that time, of course, until the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, the only begotten in all of history of the Father. So the patriarchs and the prophets and the righteous men of old could have the Holy Spirit with them to influence their minds, but that was the Spirit that came from the one we know of as Jesus Christ, and it was not the Spirit of God the Father that begat them as a child of God. All right. Christ is now risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that what? Why are Lutherans and Episcopalians and Nazarenes and Baptists angry at the word slept? There it is again. The first fruits of them that slept. Death is described as a deep sleep. You know, that's, it's not a bad sentiment, the old R.I.P. as they put on there for abbreviation, rest in peace, in peace. God's Word says that they may rest from their works and their labors, etc. And read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. It is really sort of like the righteous patriarchal hall of fame of the greatest people in the Bible. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But they're going to come up and be unaware of the passage of a single moment of time, yet in some cases they've been lying, moldering in their graves for thousands of years they will be unaware of the passage of time. He has become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. There isn't the Baptist, 
There isn't a Methodist, there isn't a Lutheran, there isn't a Catholic priest, there is not an Episcopalian, there's not a Nazarene who will preach these scriptures next or tomorrow or out of his pulpit to his people and expound them on the face of the earth. They won't do it. Now, why wouldn't they want people to know the wonderful, comforting truth of what really happens when you die? You know, there are people who come up with ideas all the time. There's a, a new idea that I've just been made aware of by one person who sent me a letter to that regard that I won't go into in detail, but it's been covered way long ago, and they, they have a problem with this. Since the Bible talks about those that shall be beaten with many stripes, and since in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, it talks about wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones, and obviously fire that will try all of these six building materials will burn up stubble almost like a flashpoint instantly like an explosion, hay very, very rapidly, wood very quickly but a little more slowly, then it will change white quartz into purple quartz but not really hurt it, and it will melt silver and gold silver being less valuable than gold, gold the most valuable of all, but it will also burn away or purge out any of the impurities or what is called the dross. So that you have six building materials, 50% of them do not survive fire, and it says the fire will try every man's work of what sort it is, but if a man's work be destroyed, yet the man himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire, that is, if he is one of the gold, silver, or precious stones. Three categories, three differences in quality of character, degree of overcoming, which is understood by the parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds, and understood also by the fact that Jesus Christ said David is going to rule over all of the twelve tribes of Israel. There is no way you or I or anyone else in this age or era can have David's throne. It's already intact to David. Well, he told the disciples at the Last Supper that each one of them are going to rule over a throne over an individual tribe of Israel. So you can't have Gad or Asher or Naphtali or Dan. It's all taken. So what I'm pointing out is it is true that there are different degrees of glory, of responsibility, of power in the kingdom of God. Then there are also lesser degrees. Now, just because David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than the greatest human being that might have ever lived, doesn't mean that there are going to be people for all eternity that just stand there and open and close doors. I, th I think sometimes people say, that'd be a good job as long as I just be there, you know, just be the doorkeeper. Uh, I don't really think that's what it means. But nevertheless, people wrestle with this because there are many scriptures which seem to imply, and because we human beings in our evil little minds sometimes want this to be so, that even though you become a Christian and you have worked for all these years and you've gone through your peaks and your valleys and you've made your mistakes and we commit sins and we slip away from God and we're not as close to God as we should be, and sometimes chapters of our life, months, years of our life, can be spent not close to God at all, but virtually ignoring God. Then we find our way back to God again, and we find out He still loves us. Then people come up with a scenario. You're going to pay for that. You're going to suffer for that. Because you were converted, and you can never commit the same sin twice according to some of these little weasels and their perverted minds. 
excuse my language, but that's just the way it feels to me. Oh, yes, you can. And oftentimes we do. They don't understand anything at all about the book of Hebrews. And you know what they're doing? Because they reject the day-to-day, hour-by-hour job of Jesus Christ today. What is Christ doing today? What has Christ been doing ever since He was resurrected? He's been busy. Jesus Christ is our high priest sitting at the right hand of God the Father to make intercession for us. And He knows our frame and He knows our weaknesses because He has been here. And He has suffered in every way and been tempted in every point, like as we are. They want to invent a kind of a purgatory. Think that through. The Catholics, if you take this evil little bent of human nature, this little penchant of human nature, that just really, if you're living a, a holy life, if you really are a celibate priest, and there might be one, <laughs> you may resent non-celibate priests, right? I mean, I have run across this attitude of people who see other people's sins. And they don't voice this audibly, but it comes right on out. And you understand it's in there. Blast his rotten ornery hide. He got away with it. And I can't. And I'm going to get him. And I'm going to make him pay for that. Now, they never voice it that way, but it's down in there. That rotten little root is down in there. And they will go through the Bible and reason around. Well, it says here that what you reap, you shall sow. And boy, you're going to, whatever you dish out, you're going to get double and so on. And so it, they, no way, they just can't abide the idea that people who have been Christians for years and commit a sin can be forgiven and that even once they get into the kingdom, they don't have to suffer for it. That makes me mad. And I want to be there to... Put the screws to them. I don't know how you do that to a spirit being, but they're going to figure a way. So, there are people that really reason that way, that God is probably somehow going to make spirit beings suffer. Well, you know, the Catholics invented purgatory way back when. And their reasoning was that since when you are assumed into heaven, as they think with their stupid platonic idea of the immortality of the soul, which flies directly in the face of all the Word of God, that you're not really good enough or perfect enough to be directly invited into the beatific vision, as they call it. So therefore, there has to be a place. Now, if you're a little baby, you're a little girl, a little boy, you're only five, and you've been picking your nose or doing something evil, why, and then you die suddenly, there's got to be a time where you've got to go through some purgatory where your parents can pay the priest and pay and pay and so on and try to get you to eventually, I don't know how long, maybe your whole lifetime, they don't really say when you get out of purgatory, but they decided to have several different compartments in purgatory. So you're dead, and you're a disembodied soul, and you're off over here in limbo. It's called limbus, by the way. You're in limbo. Limbo means floating around, going nowhere, doing nothing. You're just sort of up in limbo. So there is limbus infantum. Let's use Latin and make it sound important. Kids limbo is what it means. And then there is limbus patrium, or the fathers. Now, Abraham was a good man, but he wasn't ready to go straight to heaven, so he's got to be somewhere in a limbo. And then eventually he will be purged and all the remaining little imperfections and the guilt. But there's got to be some sort of suffering. I mean, wouldn't you be suffering if you're in disembodied spirit and there's no place to sit? 
and no place to stand and no place to go. And there's the beatific vision, you think, over there way off. You can't quite see it, winking in the distance. And here around you is evil and everything. And you're crying, and I guess you're tearing your hair. I don't know. What do people in purgatory do? Have you ever heard people preach to you about that? Do they, do they talk to each other? Do they help each other get out? You know, one of the worst things we could ever say in the Navy when somebody would tell you to go to you-know-where is say, give me the key and I'll let your mother out when you get there. Because, and that would get you a bloody nose faster than almost anything you could imagine because people do say those unkind things to other people every now and then, you know. I don't think there's a person in this room hadn't been told to go there once or another time in his life, right? So I'm not missing anybody. You know what I'm talking about. All right. They wouldn't dare preach these scriptures. Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's when at his coming. And you may as well say, because the Bible proves, not one second before. Well, I said it was a foolish question. Paul handles that. Some man will say, verse 35, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool! That which you sow is not quickened, except it die. And that which you sow, you sow not that body which shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and every seed his own body. Then he goes through all the flesh, different kinds of flesh, of a duck, a deer, a human, a cat, a fish, or a bird. There are celestial bodies. Did you see that beautiful moon? I got out so early this morning. Uh, about 5.40 and got my binoculars and I was sitting out in back and I could see a couple of the moons of Venus up there and uh, with my 10 power. And I looked at the moon, it was so bright and nearly put my eye out. It was so gorgeous. It was just a, a thrill to look at it this morning. There are celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial or earthly. And the glory of, of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. And there are different degrees of glory, uh, glory of the sun, the moon, and the stars and so on. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So there will be different degrees. There will be different degrees of beauty, of splendor, of power, of ability, and of responsibility in the kingdom of God. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And I told my sister by reading these last few verses, 49 through 51, as we have borne the image of the earthy, she and I both bear the image of Herbert W. and Loma Armstrong. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly, of our Father in heaven, El Shaddai, Yahweh Rofika, Yahweh Nisai, Jehovah, Yah, God, I Am, the eternal Elohim. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get into the kingdom of God in our current state. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. There it is again. I don't care if the Baptists don't like it. I love it. It's the Word of God. It's like a deep sleep. And my sister, my brother, and my mother, my father are asleep. And Cheryl's two brothers and her father are asleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Why would they not want to know that beautiful truth? Why would people like the mother and father of the Koch twins, the loved ones of the people on that 727, and all of those who have loved those who have died 
suddenly and accidentally, like a young gentleman up in Vancouver, B.C., just a couple of days ago, who lost a loved one by falling down the stairs, not want to know and be comforted by the truth of Almighty God about the resurrection of the dead.